Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hi, Matt. Hey, hello. Hey, thank you so much for joining me here on Social Workers Rise. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to talk to you as well. Awesome. So I'd love to hear your story about why you first got into social work. Like, how did you know social work is what you wanted to do? Uh, I didn't. Like, social work, I say social work kind of found me. Like, I know other people you know, have some story or whatever. Mine was just different. I um, I went the military path. So I joined the Marines after high school and went, you know, did the Marine Corps for four years and got out and I didn't really have a plan. I was always interested in psychology, always interested in people and how people work and, and you know, why people do the things that they do. So, um I had worked a couple of menial jobs and different things. And I'm like, I need to use my GI bill. So I started with psychology or actually started with criminal justice. Cause I, I did kind of like want to be a cop and I always kind of had an inkling to help people, but um, so criminal justice and then branched into psychology and then eventually just kind of found social work. And from there it was just kind of a really great fit as to, how broad social work is and then being able to just kind of dive deep into social work, you know, principles and values and, and, in different things. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your service. How long were you, were you in the services? Well, I did four years. So um, my uncle was a career Marine. My brother was a Marine. Both my stepdads were Marines. Um, I have a lot of family members that served. My mom has six brothers and five of them served. So it's kind of a family tradition that, you know, we serve or whatnot. So, um, yeah, I did four years from 1997 to 2001. And, um, I really think, you know, the Marine Corps set me up for a lot of things that social work doesn't prepare social workers for, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the leadership and the, the things that you in company. So, you know, my first job was child welfare. Um, So being able to deal with neglect and abuse and um, those things that social workers might deal with on a daily basis, I really attribute to the Marine Corps helping set me up for success for knowing how to be calm in situations or calm in chaos and, and how to really be objective and not let my emotions take control of, um, you know, certain things. So I really appreciate having that background before I, I jumped into social work. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I would learn. I would love to learn how to be calm in chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I already am just kind of naturally. That's just what I do. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm naturally a good social worker because I, I can be calm in chaos, but it'd be interesting to learn, you know, more about that. Um, but what other things have you done in your social work career and what are you doing now? So uh, I think everybody kind of has a journey like social work is broad and you'll get into it because you, you know, you have an inkling to help people or it's a personal thing. You know, it's, um, you know, we all have what's called character strengths and we have these strengths that we know that, hey, I'm really good with people or people really listen to me or I'm really good at understanding or, you know, these are strengths that we have. And I think those strengths kind of led me to social work, but it wasn't until I was in my BSW program and saw kind of the disparity about how student veterans were being treated versus other other populations on campus. You know, like, well, there's services for the LGBTQ population, there's services for um, minorities, there's services for disability, but why aren't there services for veterans? You know, we're, we're a unique population, but why don't we have the same kind of services? Um, so I wrote a letter to our university president and kind of explained that we have unique needs as well, just like any other population. Um, and um, from there, I really got more into po the policy aspect of social work. And, you know, a lot of people think social work is just clinical, but, you know, there's public policy, there's, you know, so many different ways that you can go. And that's really what kind of led me to take on the advocacy role for veterans and student veterans of uh, being an advocate and not just talking about things, but showing how things can be done better. Or um, my strengths are not just talking about an issue. And I think social workers do really well at talking about an issue, but how do you solve an issue? What are things that you can really take to solve the issue? So in terms of, you know, the whole student veteran thing, here's where the problems are. Here's how you can implement certain strategies and solutions. And here's how the university can do better at that. So it's not just taking a problem to somebody. It's here's what the problem is, here's how we can better understand that problem, and here are some solutions to be able to do that. So that strategy has really worked out for me. So, um, and then from there, it's just kind of getting more into uh, public policy and getting into my master's program, kind of doing the same thing. So taking on issues with homeless veterans or at-risk veterans, and then I did uh, internship with a suicide intervention organization. That's kind of what got me on the path to where I'm at now. That's fascinating. And I love that you brought up a good point about how social workers are really good at advocating for other people, but you were the one who really started advocating for yourself. You saw that there was something missing and you weren't just you know, going to sit there and say, oh, well, you know, this sucks. You actually did something about it and, um, and made some changes. And so I really admire that about you and, and think that's really awesome. 
Thanks. I think, you know, in my BSW program, it was interesting because we had this social work club, right? And the social work club wasn't very popular. There was like three or four people and, um, you know, five people, people wouldn't show up. And um, it was kind of a, a, a battle to, to get people interested in social work. And it's like, well, why are you in the in the major if you're not able to advocate for one yourself but what are your passions what do you know why are you here right so eventually i was able to become president and um it was really interesting because if you change the language if you change um how people view certain things and you ask them questions like what is your purpose or what do you want to accomplish let's make this not about you know the the president or whatever but this is your program this is your time to do things on campus to change and um you know we went from five people to like 30 it was really amazing so really just building somebody's sense of accomplishment and sense of empowerment and using their strengths um is how you kind of bring people together definitely that's really awesome So I wanted to talk with you, you know, kind of switching gears here, um, talk with you about your work and what you do right now as far as um, training on suicide. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So my full-time job, I work as a master resiliency trainer for the National Guard. So since 2010, the National Guard has implemented a resiliency program for soldiers. And resiliency, social workers are resilient, yes. But how can I be resilient in the face of negativity? How can I be resilient in the face of chaos? How can I be resilient when my day completely sucked and I don't know how to fight this negativity? I know that I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm angry, I'm pissed, I'm mad. I'm all of these emotions and these emotions are taking control. And if I go to bed that way, I'm waking up that way. If I'm waking up that way, I'm going to work that way. If I'm going to work that way, now that attitude and those emotions are affecting how I see other people and the world around me and all these stuff. So we teach soldiers these skills to be better leaders, to be better, you know, um, parents and just kind of all, all around understand that negativity happens. So how do we fight that negativity to not let that control our lives? And that kind of, in the world of suicide, we talk about um, this suicidal mind, if you want to put it that way. You know, people who have thoughts of suicide are affected by dark thoughts or they're affected by different things that happen throughout their day. And it's really interesting to be able to talk about suicide in a way that's, on one hand, it's dark, but on the other hand, provides hope and provides, um, you know, somebody who's feeling hopeless and helpless that, yeah, you can still have hope for the future. You can still have these thoughts, but you can still have hope. So I think that's kind of what my presentations and what we do as an organization. We do is people live with thoughts of suicide. That's not a bad thing. Everybody thinks that that's a bad thing. Or they kind of walk on eggshells about it. Oh, no, that's a suicide word. They must want to kill themselves. No, they don't necessarily want to kill themselves. They're just having thoughts, and they're really uncertain. 
So I think, well, one, it's interesting, like, what do you, what is the suicidal minds? Like, what do you mean by that? And then if they do have thoughts, like as a social worker, we're taught to immediately jump into like the, the risk assessment, right? So I guess in your experience, it, just because they're thinking about it, that they're not at, they don't necessarily want to do it. Can you explain that a little bit more? So, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, there's, you know, I'm not a clinical social worker. So, you know, policy advocacy, I've learned a lot about different things. And even a social worker, you don't have to be clinical to talk to somebody who's having thoughts of suicide. It's just a matter right. of, it's just a matter of, can I have the, can I feel comfortable in my own ability to talk to somebody who is um, contemplating suicide? So I like to follow the model uh, from, um, there's a theory, the perceived interpersonal theory of suicide by Dr. Thomas Joyner. So he has this theory of, uh, it starts with somebody being alone. Like I'm starting to feel alone. If I'm starting to feel alone, I'm losing connection. If I'm losing connection, then I don't feel wanted or needed, or I don't feel emotionally connected to people. If I don't feel emotionally connected to people, then I might start to feel like I'm a burden. If I'm a burden to my spouse, my friends, my family, other people, if I don't want to go to them and ask for help, or you know, even as a social worker, or I see this a lot in the military, um, you know, veterans who don't want to ask for help because I'm supposed to be able to take care of these things on my own. And the same with law enforcement. Uh, you talk about law enforcement. Well, I'm the one who's supposed to be helping other people. Why can't I ask for help myself? So it, it becomes this, this struggle between, well, now I'm alone and now I'm starting to feel like I'm a burden to other people. And then from there, it's kind of this desire for suicide. Suicide starts to be this, um, seductive thought in your head of, okay, well, if I'm alone and nobody cares about me, or if I'm alone and I don't feel connection, now I'm a burden. Now I'm starting to feel hopeless. Now I'm starting to feel helpless. And now those thoughts of suicide, if nobody is kind of connecting with me or seeing the signs or asking me questions, then I'm alone. And then the last piece is just the lethality of if I have means so I live in Wisconsin, and we like our guns here in Wisconsin. A lot of people have access to guns. So, you know, that kind of talking about people always, well, why does somebody think about suicide? Well, think about their emotions. Think about if they're feeling alone, if they're feeling like a burden, if they're feeling hopeless and helpless and that there's no will to live, there's nothing really stopping them from completing that act. And if it's you know, they have access, then that's just an additional piece. So whether it's pills or a weapon or whatever their choice is. And I really like to argue that people say, well, there were no signs. Yeah, there were signs. You just really weren't looking for them. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think that's a very big stigma about suicide. Oh man, that person, I, I would have never guessed it was them. I didn't know that they were having these, these thoughts. Uh, if I would have, if only I would have said something, but you weren't really looking, right? So um, I think as social workers, it's something that we should always be aware of is, is that our clients 
could be thinking about suicide, but also not being afraid to ask that question. You know, so I, I think we're afraid to ask that question because we're always assuming that the person is going to say yes. But what if they say no? If they say no, great. I asked the question and now we can go on to something else and say, okay, no, but you are still having a bad day. How can I still assist you? Right. So there's different directions in, in things that you can go with that. So I really like Dr. Joyner. So Dr. Joyner um, has several books about suicide and things. So I really like how he kind of put that theory together about being alone, how that goes to somebody being a burden. And then that kind of develops those thoughts of suicide and you um, incorporate having the lethality to that. Um, then that's kind of, you know, a little insight as to how people develop those thoughts of suicide. Yeah, I see that a lot when people come into the palliative clinic. So I see people who have recently gotten diagnosed with some really big health diagnosis and they are losing their independence. They are not able to take care their spouse as they once had and this is mostly with men that I've that it's most prominent that they're or women who happen who feel like they have someone that they have to take care of like maybe an adult child with special needs or maybe their husband who also is might be frail or have their own problems so a lot of times I see that they get this major diagnosis and then just like you said they they start to um, to lose that that connection. They don't want their friends to see them like this. They don't want to socialize. They're they're used to being strong in the provider and going to work, and now they they it, they feel it's almost like they feel shame having to have their spouse or their wife take care of them. Um, and if they do, if someone does say. Like, oh, I just don't want to be here anymore. I've heard so many times their family members say, oh, honey, don't talk like that. Don't say things like that. And they just brush it off. Um, but I know, you know, that we need to delve in there a little bit deeper and see, like, what's going on. Um, so in your experience, have you found that people, like, want to talk about it? Is it... Is it something that benefits them from talking openly about their thoughts and feelings of suicide? I think it's a matter of just being able to ask. I think they are willing to talk about it. The issue becomes we aren't willing to talk about it as social workers. So if myself as a social worker isn't willing to have that discussion because then it becomes oh, well, I don't want to spend time in the hospital for four, five, six hours, or I have other things. I have other clients to get to. I can't spend that time with this person that they need. So then I just, you know, I kind of walk, I walk around it. And that leaves that person that you're trying to work with, they know, like they know that you aren't willing to take that time. So it's kind of, it goes back to that connection piece. Um, but if I put my foot down and say, hey, listen, I understand you're going through a lot of certain things and I'm concerned for your well-being. I know this is a difficult question, but are you thinking about killing yourself? 
And all of a sudden there's this realization to that person of like, wow, nobody has asked that. I have given off all of these signs to a whole bunch of people. You're the first one to ask me that. And they'll say yes or no. It's not always that easy, but if you at least ask or at least approach it, then you can dive deeper and you can get that person to where you need them to be to say yes. And maybe there is some guilt in there. Maybe there is some shame, you know, that guilt talking about, um, you know, going to the work of Brene Brown, you know, her work of saying somebody who feels guilty is I did something bad or that shame piece is I am bad. And if you're talking about shame, I am bad because now I'm a burden to my family. And in palliative care, I'm bad because I can't take care of myself. I'm bad because of, you know, other emotions maybe or whatever. Or that guilt of I did something bad, um, I think, plays into, you know, how somebody might develop thoughts of suicide. But also, you know, talking about in your in the brain and there's – if I'm comfortable with the weapon or if I'm comfortable with means, you know, I talk about this with the military of um, just being comfortable with guns. I know the gun. I know inside it out. I know how to take it apart. I know how to put it together. I fired it a thousand times. My brain isn't going to tell me no. My brain is going to be like, I'm comfortable with this piece of this weapon. And this is what I'm going to use to complete that act. So, you know, all of that combined, the guilt, the shame, whatever that person is feeling. But if myself as a social worker isn't comfortable in asking that question, then again, I'm missing those signs. I'm missing that opportunity to ask. And that person is just going to be like, all right, well, if the one person who's supposed to help me can't see the signs, then I'm hopeless. And I just might as well complete the act. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So what can we do as social workers when we do have someone that we encounter, like, how do we have that conversation with them? Or, you know, what's, what's important that, that we understand? Or are there certain questions to ask? What do you recommend? One, I think we have certain attitudes and beliefs. So there's a study out of Japan that looked at Japanese social workers' beliefs about suicide. And, you know, if I asked you the question, do people have a right to suicide? Some people might say, no, no, you don't have a right to suicide. Okay. Well, why don't people have a right to suicide? Because they're going to go to hell because it's a sin because of, you know, because of their family, it's a selfish act in, in these kinds of things. But who are you to tell somebody what their right is or isn't right? Isn't it my choice? Is not my choice how I want to live or how I want to die? And you, and you have this kind of philosophical debate about suicide. Um, and I think with social workers, we all have different beliefs. We all have different attitudes. But we have to ask ourselves, what is our belief and attitude about suicide? If I have this belief that suicide is wrong or that people don't have a right to suicide, I might not want to work with somebody who's having thoughts of suicide. If I have those beliefs, I can still take the time to try to understand those beliefs, but I have to learn how to kind of keep those in control while I'm working with somebody and asking that person maybe what their beliefs are, because maybe that person having thoughts of suicide also believes that suicide is wrong, 
but they just can't control those thoughts. I just know I'm thinking about suicide. I know it's wrong. I'm just really uncertain about whether I should live or whether I should die. Okay, great. As a social worker, let's explore that. So then it's not about my beliefs, but it's about that person and their beliefs. And let's talk about where you're at right now. And um, I think those really lead to a lot of deep conversations and really leads to taking that pressure off of the social worker, a counselor, a therapist, because it's not so scary anymore. And now I'm getting the person to talk. The more I can get that person to talk, then the less anxiety they're going to feel. And now we can actually get to a point to where that person is thinking irrational. Now they're thinking more rational. And now we can figure out what direction we need to go. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I can see how it would be very powerful, you know, in that moment, because it gets them, it gets them a little bit out of their head and more introspecting and it shifts their focus from, you know, whatever it is that's bothering them to something different and something that, um, you know, you're asking them what they believe, you know, what is their opinion that can be very empowering. So I like that. Is there any other way or any other questions or conversations that we could have with people who, um, who, who have had thoughts of suicide? It's, just, it's, it's, I don't think there's, um, I think, you know, I say, get out of your clinical brain, right? Connect with the person, find something to connect with them. And, you know, we go from asking the, the asking the question and they say yes. And now all of a sudden we're in a safety plan, but did we ask them about, what what got them there like what what happened to you we we talk about trauma-informed care right like what happened to you that that got you to this point um and the same thing with somebody having thoughts of suicide And, and we talk about suicide in a way that i think traditionally people think oh somebody's suicidal they must have planned it out or they must have you know thought about this for weeks or months or days or whatever and there's, the, there's that impulsivity to suicide, too, in that it's an impulsive act. And, you know, if I lose my job, all of a sudden I'm feeling alone and I'm feeling a burden and I'm feeling helpless and hopeless. Now, all of a sudden, my brain is like, well, there's nothing left for me in this world. So if I can't bring, you know, home, if I can't bring money home to my family or food home to my family or pay my bills or whatever, then there's that, that impulsivity to suicide too. Um, and that makes it really difficult to, to, to understand and predict sometimes, but we see that with youth, right? Suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth, but for youth, it's really even more impulsive because that's maybe their first traumatic experience. You know, they're in a relationship and they lose their girlfriend or boyfriend. It's the end of the world. And their young brains can't comprehend that kind of loss or that kind of guilt or shame or, or other emotions. So then it's kind of impulsive. Um, in, in when talking about questions and things to ask, ask the person something like, what did they have for breakfast? What do they have for lunch? What do you like to do for fun? Do you have any dogs at home? Do you have any pets? Do you have any you know, kids or whatever. And I'm trying to find some sort of positive emotion in that person. And, you know, people are like, positive emotion, that doesn't work. Well, yeah, it does work because now I'm trying to build 
something that that person enjoys that they haven't thought about maybe in a long time. And I can use that positive emotion to keep them safe. I can use that positive emotion to say, okay, I understand you're still uncertain about whether you want to live or whether you want to die, but how about we just focus on keeping you safe right now and then we'll develop a longer plan down the road. And, and in that immediate sense, I think, you know, social workers, well, I need to keep this person safe for, you know, a month or two months or the rest of their lives. No, I just need to keep them safe right now. Right now, as they're having mm -hmm. thoughts of suicide, I need to keep them safe. And I do that by just getting out of my clinical brain, having a general conversation, trying to build some sort of positive emotion and saying, oh, you have a dog? Let's talk about your dog. What is your dog's name? Oh, your dog. Oh, look, I can see you have a smile on your face. That's really great. How about we, you know, go to the hospital? And how about you be home tonight to feed your dog at seven o'clock or something? Would that work for you? Yeah, that would work for me. Okay, great. And now that person is calm to the point to where they're like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Or at least they're calm. Their anxiety is low. They can actually talk about what happened. And now we can, you know, if we need to take them to the hospital, do other things that we can do that while they're being more rational as opposed to irrational. Yeah, that's really powerful. I really like that. And it, it reminds me of that could be a good segue into using like motivational interviewing where you find what they enjoy or what, what lights them up even just a little bit and you could start that conversation, like, tell me about your dog. What do you love most about your dog? Um, you know, tell me the story of when you got it. You know, any little thing like that to just evoke that positive emotion and get them focused on, on something else, especially someone or something that, that needs them and that gives their life you know, value and purpose. Yeah, value and purpose, but also life, uh, hope. But we're just talking about hope, yes. right? Like the person has lost all sense of hope. And maybe that uncertainty is still enough to help them through this. Or, you know, a family member or a sibling or a pet or, you know, whatever it is, uh, a prized possession mm -hmm. or, you know, just different things. Um, it's just providing a little bit of hope in that moment because that person is feeling hopeless and helpless. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think also too, we have to be willing to take that time and to sit there with them in that moment and, and be present ourselves. We can't be thinking about all of the other things that we have to do and, Oh gosh, this is going to take an hour or two hours. You know, it's, it's really just prioritizing that person and their life, um, which I would imagine would make a big difference. Yeah, it would make a big difference because then it's, it's understanding that one, you are valued and people do, um, you know, care for you and they do love you and they do um, want you to be here. And I think that's where positive emotion can really help that person see those qualities in themselves that maybe they haven't seen in a long time. Um, and we talk about the, just the idea of gratitude. We don't do very well when it comes to gratitude because we tend to focus on 
negative emotions, right? And those negative emotions or those negative strategies, negative strategies, those negative um, reactions that we have stay with us. And it's really, it's kind of funny because it's really hard to, it's really hard to be happy. <laughs> you know, it's like, why does life have to be so negative? And why do we have to fight to be happy? You would think it's the other way around, but it's really hard to be happy. And it's really hard to maintain that happiness every day, especially if you're a social worker or in the military or law enforcement or counselor or whatever, because we see things that aren't unhappy, right? We see things that, mm -hmm. that the normal population doesn't see every day. So I think it's even harder for us to find that happiness because we're not looking for it anymore. Yeah, I've list, I listen a lot to Tony Robbins, and he talks about how our brains are hardwired from, from the time we were created, you know, a long time ago. Um, we're hardwired to look for what is wrong as a survival trait. And so we will always find what's wrong, and that is most easily identifiable by our brains. But we also must look for what's right if if we're looking for something, then we are more bound to find it. And if we are able to train ourselves and to consciously reconsider, okay, what is going right here? What are the strengths? Like, what can I focus on in this moment that, that I can be grateful for? It really goes a long way. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And there's this um, theory out there um, called active constructive responding. And active constructive responding is um, this idea of, you know, we talk about when things go wrong, but what about when things go right? Will you be here and support me when things go right? And um, talking about when somebody brings you good news what happens when somebody brings you good news? So this is research by Shelly Gable. So she talks about um, there's four basic ways that we respond to each other when somebody brings us good news, right? So think about your kids. If you had a long day at work and you dealt with some difficult clients or cases or it was just stressful and you go home and your kid comes home and says, you know, mommy, mommy, whatever, daddy, whatever, look, I got to, I got to be on my test. And you're like, oh, that's good. I'm tired. Let's talk about this later. Your child just shared some good news with you and you just shut them down. Or you ignored the mm -hmm. event or the classic, you know, there's a person you share good news with, you know, hey, I just bought my first home and, and you're trying to share, you know, good news about how excited you are about your home or whatever. And this person's like, oh, well, that's great. Um, you know, I bought my home three years ago, and it's so great. And, yeah, we just got this flower bed, and we got a pool. Well, now they just stole your joy. And you're like, well, you know, well, <laughs> hey, thanks for making, making that about yeah. you. But, Or, you know, the idea of, you know, you share that same thing. You know, maybe you, you bought your first home, and you tell your mom, you know, hey, mom, I, I just – I just bought my first home and I'm so excited and I can't wait for you to visit and you know, whatever. And, and your parents are like, are you sure you have the money for that? Is this the right time for that? Do you know what you're doing? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and and you, you kind of respond in a way of um you know out of like concern and whatever and we tend to respond to those three different ways but we don't take the time to build on those positive emotions we don't take the time to say mm-hmm. when somebody brings us good news why is it hard for me to take 10 seconds or 15 seconds to be genuine about it right and now think about how that's going to affect relationships. If I'm the kind of person that responds, um, you know, if I ignore the event or if I steal their joy or if I'm always like, you know, your teenager wants to go out to a party and you're like, no, that's not a good idea and you need to stay home. And like, if I'm always shutting them down, how is that going to build relationships? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. And if you talk about suicide, if I'm starting to feel alone, that's because, well, I tried to share good news with my mom or dad, and they don't care. I tried to share good news with my friends, and they don't care. Well, now I'm starting to feel alone. And well, now I'm a burden because I don't think I can go to them about anything. I can't. If I can't go to them with my good news, what makes you think I'm going to go to them with my bad news? What makes you think I'm going to share that I'm depressed or sad or angry or other things? If they can't, if they can't, right. if they can't support me when I'm happy. I'm not going to feel comfortable with them and supporting me that I'm sad or mad or angry or whatever. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, now I feel like I'm a burden because I can't share my good news. I can't share my bad news. What's the point? Now I'm starting to feel helpless. Now I'm starting to feel hopeless. So we can see how, you know, we have these connections, but we tend to push these connections away. And that's how people tend to, you know, start to have thoughts of suicide in it's really weird because it's like, well, good news is supposed to be a good thing. Yeah, it is supposed to be a good thing. But on the opposite end of that, if I'm not elaborating on that good news or sharing in those positive emotions with my family and the friends around me, then I need to think about that. I need to think about how I'm building relationships around me. I need to think about if my kids are having issues, is that because I didn't expand on their good news and their positive emotions? And now I don't know how to talk to my kid because my kid won't talk to me. It, and it all stems mm-hmm. from, you know, certain things like that and that we don't build enough positive emotion. Yeah, that makes sense. And on the same token, we don't celebrate enough. And I think that we we can definitely improve our own our own mental wellness if we celebrated even little things on a regular basis, like little things that we accomplish, like, um, I mean, like, okay, let's see. Okay, today I had um, like a spinach smoothie and I ate healthy and I'm very proud of myself um, because being at home, I have entirely too many Doritos. And so I'm kind of proud of the fact that I didn't have any Doritos. Well, I ate them all, but there's no more (laughs) today. Um, So even though that might sound like trivial and like, okay, whatever's, but just having those small little teeny tiny celebrations lifts our spirit and it motivates us to continue to do more. And I know that there's research out there that says that, you know, if we continue to provide, um, positivity and and reward for these little actions then that will build on each other to where you know overall we just are feeling better and more hopeful throughout the day 
Um, and so I think that that's one thing that we don't do enough is we don't celebrate our little wins. We wait until there's like some massive thing that we've waited years to do, but um, we can be celebrating, you know, at least something every day. Yeah, the, you're right. And there's, um, when we talk about resilience, part of resilience is building gratitude. And there's research by um, somebody by the name of Martin Seligman. Martin Seligman has wrote a couple books on positive psychology, positive emotion. Um, so through the University of Pennsylvania, they really created the, the idea of positive psychology. And at first it was kind of a joke, right? Like positive psychology, that's, you know, what is that? But talking about gratitude, there's different ways that you can build gratitude. One way is a gratitude journal. Just taking time in your day to, to see three things that were good. I had, you know, for you, I had a spinach smoothie. Great. I didn't eat Doritos. Great. I got time to spend with my kid again while being home. Right. Great. Those are three good things. And then the next day, what are three different good things? And we know that it takes what 21 days or so to build a habit. If I just build that habit of gratitude by writing three things down, I'm going to have so many good things and my mood is going to change. I'm going to feel those positive effects. I'm going to feel that gratitude. And then that gratitude is going to spread to other people in other areas of your life. And it's a way to make that part of your daily routine or just giving one general one, you know, genuine compliment per day. Like I'm just going to compliment the, the bagger who bags my groceries. Hey, I really appreciate how you did that. Thanks. Maybe, you know, 500 people that have come through the grocery store and one person actually takes the time to say thank you. Like, not just thank you, but mm -hmm. genuinely. Hey, I appreciate how you bagged my grocery. I appreciate the time that you did that. I appreciate, you know, and how many times does a person at your grocery store, the bagger, whatever, have kind of like a little mini conversation with you and they get ignored? You know, like, I, I notice that yeah. all the time. And I'm like, well, that's rude. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, like they're just trying to, to be nice because that's their job. But it only takes 20 seconds to say, hey, I appreciate you having that conversation with me. I appreciate you sharing that with me. Right. So sharing that compliment or you could when walking, like, you know, people go for a walk and, you know, using your five senses to find something that you're grateful for. Maybe it's a smell. Maybe it's something that you hear, the, the rustling of the leaves. I can smell the fresh air. I can touch the grass. I can feel the ground under my feet. I'm really grateful. I can see the sunshine, right? Like those things, those senses, using your senses to build gratitude, we don't do that enough. So why can't, you know, doing those things really helps build gratitude and, and those positive emotions. And that's how we can, and I think that's how we can, have those conversations about suicide or have those difficult kind it doesn't even have to be about suicide it can be about other things right like you talk about your work in palliative care talking about those difficult decisions that people might have to make at the end of life or whatever or after they, they're diagnosed but if i have gratitude in myself then i'm going to feel more comfortable with having those conversations because i'm grateful for the things that build me up daily and i know this person is struggling, but maybe my gratitude can help this person find gratitude. Maybe their gratitude can help somebody else find their gratitude. And that's how we do that. 
Definitely. Yeah. I truly believe that positivity is contagious. It is contagious and it's hard. And, you know, I always say, you know, people are like, well, I'm not all about that sunshine and rainbow shit. Well, it's not all about sunshine and rainbows, right? Right. It's saying that this person, you, and, and I, I talk about this with law enforcement and law enforcement in the military, I tell you, are some of the hardest groups to talk to because I'm strong. I wear a uniform. I've taken training. I'm, you know, combat training. Okay, great. So am I, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I've been through that training. I know what you guys do. I've worn the uniform. I've whatever. You don't have to put on this facade for me. Like, no, I understand you guys go through some pretty difficult things. I'm not saying ignore those. I'm not saying suppress those. I'm saying, I'm saying deal with that head on. Mm-hmm. We're going to deal with that head on. We're going to figure out what that situation was, what that trauma was. And we're going to use positive emotion to build on that. We're going to help you find gratitude again. We're going to help you um, deal with that, those traumatic experiences and say, yeah, this happened to me. But on the other hand, how can I build gratitude? How can I build connections? How can I maintain my level of sanity while going through these difficult times? Yeah, definitely. Because they, that particular group of people, they see so many traumatic things that like normal human beings are not like equipped to deal with like we're not made to see death and traumatic injury on a daily basis and so I could imagine that they like that frame of mind is even maybe like a coping mechanism for them Um, and it could be hard to break yeah, it's definitely a coping, definitely a coping mechanism because then it's, um, especially with law enforcement, right? Law enforcement deals with the law enforcement, um, your emergency personnel, EMTs, dispatchers, you know, they deal with it all day, every day because those things constantly happen. So if I'm a law enforcement officer, you know, I might have to respond to a domestic violence situation. Okay. Three hours later, I might have to respond to a welfare check. A few hours later, now I'm responding to a car accident. Or so essentially that's three major traumas that just happened that my brain hasn't had time to process. Mm -hmm. Or think about the dispatcher, the dispatcher on the other end who has to report that to the law enforcement officer. Or think about the lawyers in court. Like we always talk about lawyers and joke about lawyers and Think about the lawyers in court who are having to defend or having to listen to criminal cases, having to listen to murder cases, having to listen to child rapist cases or sexual assault or, um, you know, those things. And at the end of the day, those things don't leave you because now that I've heard them, they're embedded in my brain. And I've just heard things that most people, you know, couldn't fathom. So, or the EMTs who most likely see more things because they're dealing with, you know, body trauma. They're dealing with, you know, gunshot wounds and sickness and illness and, you know, bodily fluids and all these other things. Um, And that happens every day for them. So just imagine how I think resilient they are, but at some point everybody has a breaking point. 
And then what is my coping mechanism? That's why we have a high rate of divorce and law enforcement and the military. That's why you have a high rate of, you know, drug use and alcohol abuse and things in professions like law and military, mm -hmm. because I just don't know how to cope anymore. My brain is trying to process these, um, these thoughts. They're trying to process my emotions and reactions. And I just need that inner turmoil to stop. I need that inner crisis to stop. Um, so they turn to other things and those negative things obviously don't help but if we can try to build resilience beforehand and that's what i'm doing with law enforcement now is okay before you start to go down that path of drugs alcohol divorce uh ruin your career let's talk about how we can use gratitude let's talk about how we can use resilience to say i do need help and then when you do say you need help, then making sure that you get the help that you need. Mm -hmm. um, so I think sometimes people ask for help and they don't necessarily get the services that they need, which kind of sucks. We know our system isn't perfect. And I think as social workers, that's another thing that kind of bugs me. Um, you know, I'll call an agency and I'll ask about a service. Oh, I read or heard that you provide this service for veterans or whatever. Oh, okay, well, that veteran has to have two years of active duty service and make so much money or whatever. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Right. Now you're adding now you're adding additional barriers for me to be able to help this person. And then they're like, oh, well, we're sorry, sir. Well, you don't have to tell me you're sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a social worker. I get it. But now I have to tell my client that, oh, well, this organization isn't providing the service that they said they were. Or they're adding additional barriers. Right. Um, right. So if you say you're going to help or if you say you're going to provide a service and especially to a certain population and it, it irritates me with, especially with veterans or whatever, I know what organizations get, what money I know what organizations, whatever. And if I come to you and you're like, Oh, sorry, we can't help. And I'm like, but you just got a grant for this amount of money and now you can't help. Okay. That, that's not, that doesn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. Right. So then it's, um, well, now I have to spend more time to navigate, you know, whatever and, and other stuff. So um, that's challenging when, it, when the system is kind of set up that way. But you still have to have gratitude. You still have to have positivity. And you still have to help, help that person at the end of the day um, leave with some sort of hope and not some sort of um, hopelessness. Definitely. And I found that even if I can't help them, and this is especially true, like being in the healthcare setting right now, there's such, such limited resources um, that are actually operating that if, if I'm genuine with them and take more of a partnership with them, like, you know, there's not a lot that we can do and, and empathize with them and let them know that I'm on their team and that you know they aren't alone and even if that's all I can offer is is my attention and listening and and my compassion then that seems to go a long way and at least they you know they can tell they know that I care and that I'm doing my best and that's what people want right they just want to know that you're doing your best job or they want to know that you're at least trying so I, I think for me it's it's being transparent right it's being transparent and letting that person know like listen i tried this route and this route that didn't work but here's where we're going to go next 
And in the meantime, let me try to maybe give you a gas card or let me try to give you, um, you know, a voucher to, you know, wherever, or, you know, a little fix in the meantime can go a long way. Um, or, you know, I think just being transparent and being honest with the person, yeah. you know, so, um, yeah, I've, I've met a lot of social workers who weren't so honest, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, it's not the best approach. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mike, for, for talking with me. I really enjoyed having you on here. Where can people find you or keep in contact with you? Yeah. Um, I want to share a quote real quick, if yes, I can. Please. Uh, so one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite authors and somebody that I would highly recommend anybody to listen to uh, is this individual by the name of Jocko Willink. So Jocko Willink is a former Navy SEAL commander who talks about leadership in a way um, of how I can take accountability for my own life to be able to lead others. So he has this quote, and his quote is called, uh, take ownership, take extreme ownership, don't make excuses, don't blame any other person or any other thing, get control of your ego, don't hide your delicate pride from the truth, take ownership of everything in your world, the good and the bad, Take ownership of your mistakes, take ownership of your shortfalls, ownership of your problems, and then take ownership of your solutions that will get those problems solved. Take ownership of your mission, take ownership of your job, of your team, of your future, and take ownership of your life and lead. And I think as social workers, that's what we need to do. Take ownership of our life and we can lead others. So um, with that, people can find me um, on Facebook, Mike Crumb, pretty easy to find, or Mike at centerforsuicideawareness.org. Um, so, um, yeah. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of social workers rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at socialworkersrise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.